0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Work and Rest, where we are exploring these life-giving rhythms God has designed for us. Thanks for joining us. Hey, in the first week of this series, Jeff had us list the jobs that we held in the past. And I was thinking back over the places that I've worked before coming to work at Cherry Hills 16 years ago. And I thought about this. I was a busboy at Red Lobster. That was my first job. Awful. Uh, I was a waiter at Days Inn. The restaurant and hotel are not even in existence on Stevenson Drive anymore. Waiter at Days Inn. I worked maintenance at the Illinois State Fairgrounds, cleaning out stalls and power washing in preparation for the fair. I worked in our career center at college. I worked in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in Washington, D.C., and then a law firm in D.C., and then I came back here and worked for the lieutenant governor of Illinois working on press conferences. And so as I thought about those jobs, I don't know if I can honestly say that my faith influenced my work and that my core motivation in all of that work was to represent Jesus well and to glorify God. I don't know that that was my core motivation. And even as a pastor, there are days when I'm motivated by other things. Let's be honest. There's a lot of things that can motivate us in our work. Light bulbs might be going off for you right now, but some are money. Provision for our families, fame, advancement, position, recognition, retirement. And here's what we can't do. We can't just say, don't let those motivate you because they do. And I'd also say those things aren't necessarily bad in themselves. All of them aren't bad. But we have to identify our keystone motivation in our work. Because if you're following in your notes, whatever it is that motivates us affects how we see our work. It affects how we see our work. And I just want to put this out there as we get going. If our faith is not the driving motivation in doing our work, then our desires will be misplaced and we will continually be let down and disappointed. We'll come back to that reality again and again today. Our faith motivating our work is also critical as followers of Jesus because this is a significant way that we live out our faith in the public square. Billy Graham The evangelist Billy Graham said the next great awakening, the the next great move of faith will be in the workplace. And I think that's because if you're following in your notes, how we conduct ourselves at work is a witness to the world. It's a witness to the world. It's a way we share the good news of Jesus with a world that desperately needs it. And as I look back over my first 25 years of work, and I think about what could have been, the influence that I could have had, the conversations about faith that were missed, all because my work wasn't motivated by my faith. I was on the mission field every single day, and I didn't see myself as a missionary, somebody sent by God into the workplace to represent him well. So the reason we're talking about work this summer is because this is where we spend 85% of our waking hours. And if we want to give ourselves fully to the way of Jesus and his mission, then we need to talk about what it means to pair our work and our faith rather than seeing them as separate entities. We separate our spiritual lives and our work lives. We need to bring those together and live one life following the way of Jesus. And that's why this summer we're spending nine weeks in a series called Work and Rest, where if you're following in your notes, we are exploring the two life-giving rhythms of work and rest that God has designed for us. And when I say work, I, I so want everyone to hear this online and in the room. When I say work, I want us today to go beyond our nine to five working jobs that require us to leave home and head to the office. That is certainly true. But what we're talking about includes stay-at-home moms, students in a classroom that do their work there. Our tasks done in retirement is work. Athletes on a team is work. Parenting in your home is work. Amen? (laughs) That's a big amen. It is work. How we think about our work, whatever our work is, and whatever motivates us in our work influences how we conduct ourselves at work. And in the first two weeks of this series, Jeff taught us that we are created for work. It shows up in the second chapter of the Bible. If we want to join Jesus in his mission, it includes our work because we were created for meaningful work. I love how Jeff pulled out that work in Genesis can mean service, And worship. Our work is worship, a response to the God who created us. And then we talked last week about how because of sin and the fall, just one chapter later in Genesis 3, we live in a world where work can feel more like a curse than a blessing. And that if we're realistic, work isn't always going to be the greatest thing ever, but there's a day coming when everything will be made new. And today, we're talking about our motivation in our work, because until that day, when everything is made new, we need to learn how we glorify God in our work. So to talk about that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. You can pull out your Bibles, pull out your devices. If you don't have a Bible with you, We have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and Ephesians chapter 6 can be found on page 950 of those black Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 6. And before we walk through this passage, I want to offer a few comments about what we're going to read. It's just going to be a few minutes, and then we'll dive in to the text. But I'm a huge believer that context is critical when reading the Bible, and that is certainly true today. So here we go. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. It was a young church in the city of Ephesus. You can see this on the screen. Ephesus was a leading city in, in Greece, the Greco-Roman world, and the entire world at that time. Ephesus was controlled by Rome. And as you can imagine, living as a Christian and following the way of Jesus in Ephesus would have looked very different than the Greco-Roman world around them. So Paul writes a letter to this church to let them know who they are in Christ, the first three chapters, and then the last three chapters, how their lives can look different as followers of Jesus. And in Ephesians 5 and 6, those two chapters particularly, Paul instructs households on how to conduct themselves. And Paul speaks about three relationships in most households at that time marriage, parenting, and slavery. And in a culture that valued position and power, Paul showed special concern for the powerless and the marginalized members, women, children, and slaves. And the verses we're looking at today are set in the context. So that's where we are in Ephesus. They're set in the context of slavery. And in a lot of commentaries that I read that cover Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, there was a sentence or two about slavery and then an immediate application to our workplace today. And I just found that to be disingenuous. It just didn't sit right in my spirit that we just don't talk about that. We just jump to our modern workplace. So I want to talk about the context of slavery for just a moment that we find in Ephesians and then we're going to move into to how this applies to us. Again, Ephesians was written to a Greco-Roman world where as many as one-third of all people were slaves. People became slaves through various avenues, birth, abandonment, captivity in war, inability to pay debts, and voluntary attempts to better one's condition. What's interesting about this is at this time in history, race was not a factor in slavery like it would become in the 1600s in America with chattel slavery. Paul is writing to this church, to followers of Jesus who would have owned slaves before becoming Christians or followers of Jesus who looked a lot like the culture around them. And he wanted to instruct these followers of Jesus how to live the way of Jesus. Paul was addressing a real life situation, one third of all households. And he wanted to instruct how both slaves and masters could glorify God. And in doing so, I really believe this, and we're gonna talk about it in a couple more minutes. Paul was subverting the institution of slavery that would lead to its destruction. I appreciate what one pastor said about these verses. If followed, the relationship would have been altered with an unprecedented call to mutuality that both parties would be subject to Christ alone. And that's not what happened. These passages have been misused by several groups of people. One was primarily white pastors who used this passage to say slavery is fine and biblical. And if you go back in American church history, you'll find pastors justifying the institution of slavery on the basis of these verses. The other group and another misuse is people who've given up on faith and distrust what the Bible says because they believe the Bible condones slavery because of these verses. And if the word of God condones racism, classism, and slavery, then they have to reject the Bible outright. Many people have come to that conclusion. And just so we're all clear on the issue of slavery as we get into our text, the Bible opposes the type of cruel slavery we think about today. The Bible never looks favorably upon slavery. All human beings are made in the image of God and have the right to be treated with honor, respect, and love. We're called to love our neighbor, not own our neighbor. And the love of Christ does no wrong to a neighbor. And the same Paul that wrote these verses in Ephesians wrote in another letter titled 1 Timothy that slave traders were unrighteous, lawbreakers, rebels, ungodly, sinful, holy, and irreligious. The Bible stands against slavery. And this is why I wanted to talk about all that. We need to exercise extreme caution in making one to one correlations where slaves equal employers and ma- or slaves equal employees and masters equal employers. That, that's just not a fair comparison. But what I will say, and I believe this with everything in me, there are principles in these instructions that apply in any setting including the workplace. And that's what we're going to do when we walk through these verses. We're going to look at four principles on how we glorify Christ in our work. And what I found interesting about these principles is they all have to do with our heart. They all have to do with our heart. There are, this is what we can control. We might not be able to control the situation or the environment around us, but we can control ourselves. So let's read verse five and six in the first gray box. This is from the message paraphrase. Would you read this out loud with me? It says, servants, respectfully obey your earthly masters, but always with an eye to obeying the real master, Christ. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but work heartily as Christ's servants doing what God wants you to do. First principle we see, if you're following in your notes, we glorify Christ by respecting those in authority. We work With respect, in that we obey the orders of those in authority over us. And I don't know what you think of when you hear those words. Probably some what-ifs, or what about this, or you don't know my situation. And when you hear the word respect, I just want us to, to get in the mindset of what that meant, that word meant to the Greeks the word for respect means to honor or value. And specifically, it means we're acknowledging that another person is created in the image of God and deserves our respect. And as we respect those in authority and follow their instruction, what we're really doing is obeying our true authority, which is Christ. So practically... This means that a difference of opinion or a difference of judgment is not itself good enough for a follower of Jesus to disobey your supervisor at work or to bad mouth or trash talk your supervisor or your teacher or your coach or your organization. You can have a conversation with that person about your disagreement, but the way of Jesus is not outright disobedience because you disagree on something. I know this is hard maybe seemingly impossible, but the context of five verses, or chapters five and six in Ephesians was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is impossible without the help of the Holy Spirit. And I can speak from experience here. When, when I don't follow this principle, it is easy for contempt to build up towards those in authority that leads to disrespect and me thinking about them as anything less than created in the image of God. It's a relating rightly principle. And let me be really clear about this too. I'm not talking about if you're asked to do something sinful, immoral, illegal, or against your convictions. That, that is another thing entirely. This verse does not mean we obey blindly. It means we respect those in authority over us. And in verse six, Paul addresses our motivation in respecting those in authority over us. This is from the New International Version. This is verse six. It says, obey them, he's talking about masters, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. We don't do our work. What Paul is saying, we don't do our work to earn the favor of other people when they're watching. That may happen. That might happen, but our motivation is, and the reason we work with integrity, it's the reason we're the same person when someone is watching us or not because we don't do our work to win the favor or acknowledgement of other people. Yes, we respect them. We respect those in authority, but we do our work ultimately for an audience of one. And that's why we do our work to the best of our ability, whether someone is watching us or not. I love what Kent Hughes, a pastor in Chicago, wrote. He said that we are serving Christ as we serve those over us is to be the transforming realization and motivation behind our work. We're serving Christ, we're working for Him. And living out this principle can keep us from becoming disappointed when things don't go our way, when things don't go our way in the classroom when things don't go our way at home, when we get overlooked for the promotion, when our supervisor or a client treats us badly, when other employers do less work yet get rewarded and acknowledged and we don't. I'm not saying those things don't hurt, they do. But if we keep our eyes on the one we work for, it motivates us differently. We glorify Christ. We look different than the culture around us by respecting those in authority because our ultimate authority is God. The second principle that we see in these verses, if you're following your notes, is we glorify Christ by working wholeheartedly. I wanna put verse seven on the screen. Would you read this with me out loud? It says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. You're gonna notice these verses repeat. They they repeat themselves. They build on one another. There's one central message. We work wholeheartedly and we take pride in our work because God is our audience and how we work. Think about this, how we work honors or dishonors him. Working hard at our tasks from the heart Brings glory to God. We do our work to the best of our ability, regardless of the compensation or the appreciation we receive from our bosses, customers, regulators, or anyone else in authority over us. As followers of Jesus, again, this is so countercultural. The key motivator in our work is that we're doing our work to please God alone. And I'm going to beat this drum again. If this is not your key motivator, you are going to be continually disappointed in your work. If faith is not the key motivation, we are gonna find ourselves in cycles where we're frustrated, angry, critical, grumbling, trying to get other people on our side or to divide people, all of which don't look much different than the world around us. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. You're living that. And I wonder if Paul included the next verse, verse eight, because he knows work can be difficult. He knows supervisors can be awful and our work can be unenjoyable about, at times. And that's why Paul includes the third principle, which is, if you're following in your notes, we glorify Christ by working expectantly. We work Expectantly. I'm gonna put verse eight on the screen so we can see this expectation. It says, because you know, we do our work. We don't do it for anybody else. And then he says, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing will be rewarded by the Lord if it's done for him. This means it doesn't matter whether your boss sees you working hard or not or your spouse knows how many diapers you changed that day. No act goes unnoticed by God. Believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and will be rewarded based on our present faithfulness. We read about that in Matthew 16, Romans 2, 2 Corinthians 5. And think about how this perspective Could change our work. Nothing done for the Lord is in vain. Nothing. Even if what we do is not acknowledged, rewarded, or compensated for right now. John Stott was a pastor in the Anglican Church in England, and he's one of my heroes of the faith. He wrote this you can see this quote on the screen It is possible for the stay at home mom to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to clean the house as if Jesus were to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients, and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters, as if in each case they were serving Jesus. Amen and amen. The apostle Paul would write something similar in a letter to another church in a city called Corinth. Would you read what he wrote in the second gray box on your notes? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He said, full voice, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whether you mop floors, write contracts, put out fires, change diapers, go to school and take tests, compete on the athletic field. We do it for the glory of God. Read an article this week by a pastor in New York City named John Tyson. Chad actually referenced his book that's at the Resource Center. In that article, Tyson wrote these words. You can see these on the screen. One of the meanings of the word glory is weight or significance. And when we take our ordinary everyday work and with holy intent seek to make it an act of worship before God, the mundane is transformed into something weighty and sacred. We infuse the ordinary stuff of life with holy intent. And so make even the most trivial tasks, artifacts, and objects of glory. And then he tells this story of a barista who goes to his church in New York City. The barista works at a coffee shop and he said this about his job serving coffee. He said, when I place the lid on the cup, I consciously do it as an act of worship and blessing and I bless the person as I hand them the coffee and it has transformed what I do. One little perspective change. And Tyson finishes his article by writing this. This is so good. Imagine if Christians had this vision of glory in every part of life. Buildings would be designed with holy intent. Food would be cooked with holy intent. Children would be taught with holy intent and court cases would be tried with holy intent. And slowly but surely in every sphere of our world, Life would take on a new weight and significance as the stuff of life became the stuff of glory. So good. So good. And I love those words. If you're following in your notes, we work with a holy intent. We work with a holy intent. Holy is this word that means set apart. So we work with a set apart intention or purpose. Whatever we do, Wherever we do it, we do it for the glory of God with holy intent. And I don't, I don't wanna make it sound like this is super easy. This takes training and it takes practice. It's like a spiritual discipline that we need to practice daily, but this could change everything in how we view our jobs. Holy intent leads us to the conviction Right? Whether we're in the classroom, the workplace, the home, retirement, holy intent leads us to the conviction, if you're following in your notes, that there's no separation between secular and sacred if our work is done with Jesus for his glory. We live one life. We live the way of Jesus in every area of our life. I I love how a pastor in Hawaii named Wayne Cordero has said in the past that God takes ministers and he dresses them up like school teachers. And he takes ministers and he dresses them up like accountants. He takes ministers and he dresses them up like police officers, like stay-at-home moms, like students, like coaches, like salespeople, like state workers, like doctors, and nurses. Could it be, I just want you to think about this. Could it be that God has you right where he wants you right now to accomplish his purposes? To have a conversation with someone who's lonely or hurting or to share your faith if the conversation goes that direction, if we only saw our work with holy intent. 22 years ago, I went to a weekend retreat at my buddy's church in Naperville, Illinois. It was called Christ Renews His Parish. It was St. John's Lutheran. And it changed my life and led me going back to seminary. And at the beginning of our time together, there were about 30 guys. And so we all introduced ourselves. We went around the room and they would say, say your name, and then what do you do? Who do you work for? And so we went around the room. My name is so-and-so, my name is so-and-so. I work for the state. I work for Boeing. I work for Edward Hospital. And there's this one guy, I think he was next to last. I think his name was Gary. He said, my name is Gary and I work for God. I haven't forgotten that 22 years later. That stuck with me that this guy saw his work with holy intent, could change everything. And then Paul concludes this and he turns his attention to the masters of slaves in verse nine. And I want to read this third gray box together on your notes. Would you read this with me? And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So don't overlook the four words in verse nine. You may want to circle them inside of your third gray box in the same way in the same way, maybe circle those. This would have been startling in the context of ancient slavery. And I believe this is where Paul was subtly or not so subtly subverting slavery. Because for these masters to treat their slaves the same way means they would have to treat their slaves with respect and sincerity of heart, that they would see their slaves as equal because God is the master of both of them. Masters would treat their slaves how they would treat Christ. This would have radically changed the employee-employer relationship. One author said this. This alone should have abolished slavery. And the principle that this teaches us in leadership, and I, I want I want you all to hear this. I think we all have some sphere of leadership, regardless of what stage of life we're in, at work, in the classroom, in a band on the athletic field. We we all have some sphere of influence. And the fourth principle of these verses, if you're following in your notes, is leaders glorify Christ by being the lead servant. You might hold a position of leadership, but that does not exempt you from being a member of the team. And while you may have to make difficult decisions or have hard conversations, if you're a follower of Jesus then you don't use guilt or coercion to motivate your employees. You don't threaten and use fear to accomplish a goal. You refrain from harshness and bullying. Domination of others is prohibited as a follower of Jesus as is any kind of abuse, verbal, mental, physical, or spiritual. Christian leaders, we need to look different than our culture and we can't be known as ruthless, but as caring, committed, and fair practicing the way of Jesus. This is the leadership that Jesus demonstrated. In Philippians 2, we're told, you can see this on the screen, very famous words. This was a hymn of the early church. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus displayed the attitude that those in leadership need to follow. He came to serve, he took up the towel, he cared for the vulnerable, he didn't seek earthly praise, he was a shepherd, not a dictator. As leaders, we're entrusted to be the lead servant and we shepherd those who are under our care. We take an interest in them as people and their whole lives, not just the productivity that they can provide the company. Leaders, you're held to a high standard. And if you're leading this way, then way to go. And if you're a leader and you're here and you, you don't see yourself as the lead servant or you don't look like Jesus as you lead, then I want to ask you today to begin seeing your leadership with holy intent. We need you. We need you to see your leadership with holy intent as followers of Jesus. So let me finish by asking a question of all of us. I'm ask you to keep your notes out for just another minute. But here's the question we all need to answer. If you're following your notes, do you approach your work with holy intent? Is your faith the key motivator in how you do your work? If the answer is no, today can be the day where you ask God to change that. He can change your motivation and your desires. And we're gonna give you just a little bit of time here, just a little bit of space to talk to him about that. I believe the Holy Spirit's always at work. God talks to us more than we even recognize. But I want you to talk to him about your motivations and desires. What is your motivation in your work? Just name that to him. Don't shame and guilt yourself. Just name it to him. Ask him to reorder those desires and those motivations and maybe pray a simple prayer. And this is what I want you to write on the bottom of your notes. This is the prayer I would love for you to finish this time of talking with God by saying, God, give me a holy intent for my work. Talk to him. Tell him what your motivation is, your desires. He knows, but it's about a conversation and a relationship. So talk to him right now and then finish with God. Give me a holy intent for my work. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.